0: Welcome to the uh, fifth episode (coughs) of the Anatomy Cupboard. This one's entitled, Bring the Head of Antonio Scarpa. For anatomy students, you'll know, perhaps or certainly have heard, of Scarpa's fascia. Beyond that, what does it mean? What was the background to this guy? Anatomy, or rather its public exposition, had in the 18th century the sort of look and feel of any freak show. Anatomy was just as much about the showman as it was about the show. Competitive ringmasters down the road included the anatomist Georges Cuvier, who followed around the famous Venus Hottentot, as she was called, a woman called Satya Bartman, South African lady who became famous for showing her grossly thickened buttocks which hung off her like a massive booty, if one can use that common parlance, what's called in fact steatopygia, which some pygmy races have with an excessive accumulation of fat in the buttocks. But Satya also was rumoured to have massive genital labia or labial folds, which she would never show on stage. And uh, which is what fascinated Cuvier so much that after Satya died, he immediately performed a post-mortem on her and then skinned off her grossly enlarged labial or vulval folds. And he put them in a formalin jar, which he kept in a bottle in his office. Specimens, rarities, oddities, or maybe just trophies. It was, after all, no different to that great showman Phineas T. Barnum who displayed a woman called Joyce Heth, whom he billed as being the oldest woman in the world and who herself had claimed to have been the nanny of George Washington and who, when she was being shown to tell her stories of young George, would ha- have to have been over 160 years of age. Anyway, when she died, Barnum arranged for her to be autopsied in New York and he charged tickets for that process. It turns out that the coroner, David Rogers, at the time discovered that she was just a pretty average 80-year-old lady, with Barnum finally admitting that the whole thing was a hoax. These were different eras, a different sense of collecting, a different idea, certainly about informed consent, and about privacy. I'm not saying that the anatomists were hoaxers. What I am saying is that they had a modus operandi, certainly in the history of anatomy, which couldn't at times be distinguished from some of these ringmasters. But the point is that to be an anatomist, certainly in the 18th century and beyond, it wasn't enough to have a scientific bent. You needed to have a collection of stuff Interesting stuff that could compete with other anatomists and some other pretty garish material that was doing the rounds outside. And I hate the term freaks, but the shows that displayed the pinheads, giants, dwarves, albinos, bearded ladies, the morbidly obese, and then that ultimate prize, those specimens, if you wish to call them that, who possessed ambiguous genitalia. Some of these collections included also the concept of the live exhibit, the freak, if you must, who functioned perhaps as a museum usher and who might expect that upon their death they'd end up being a stuffed specimen or perhaps their skeleton might be displayed. This certainly happened. Just imagine the examples from Peter the Great's St Petersburg Museum, which you can still visit. His seven-foot footman, a man called Nicholas Bourgeois, working there for years, ends up having his skeleton on display. His gigantic heart is also on view under a portrait of the man, one thing sort of dehumanising him and another showing up his character. And now, actually, although you can see those items at the Kunstkammer in St. Petersburg, not on display were his comparo were at some stage his comparatively small genitals. When you talk to the curator of that museum, he says the genitals of Bourgeois have been lost. But of course down the road, the Hermitage Museum believes that they've lost over a million pieces of art. Well, thank God at least, they seem to have disappeared, those (laughs) genitals. Bourgeois wasn't the only one at uh, the St. Petersburg Kunstkammer. Peter the Great had an usher, a man called Foma Ignatev, who worked for the Tsar for 17 years until he too died, and Ignatib was put on display as a taxidermied specimen until the stuffed remains went up in a museum fire. That's it then. Work for the man is a freak, and the best you can expect is to be put on display after you die. I don't think they had much of a work contract, obviously. But the line between these anatomical collections and the shows on offer was pretty blurred. These things pushed the envelope to the point of public censure. When the anatomist Honoré Fragonard put his skin bodies on display in the late 18th century, the Parlement de Paris invoked an old statute to ensure that people viewing this sort of stuff would not be corrupted. They couldn't, for example, see any of Fragonard's specimens after dark, and only then they could see those exhibits where, quote, the natural parts had been removed, unquote. When the flamboyant pathologist Gunther van Hagens in our own time put out his plastinated specimens, corpses where the water has been replaced with a mix of plastic polymers, in the early 1990s his Body World show, or Die Körperwelten as it was called, people were shocked when he posed a man with the necessary chemical inflation of the plastinates' member, and placed that man with a woman, also suitably positioned, the two of them engaged in sort of necromantic sexual intercourse—death and sex. I mean, who knew that that would enrage the public or upset the old cleric? It wasn't like the guy didn't know what he was doing, emulating the impresarios of 18th-century anatomy when Fragonard did it. His boss. The head of the veterinary school outside Paris where Fragonard was displaying his work, a man called Claude Bourgelin, wrote a letter to the ministry insisting that old Fragonard had gone mad. And they tried the same trick on Von Hagens, but the controversy seemed to only make him more popular. Von Hagens even accepted his fate tongue-in-cheek, holding his exhibitions not in a museum or a gallery or public exhibition hall, but in Hamburg in an erotic art museum. And then he had the temerity to invite some local strippers along to the opening night. So don't get me started on where the show stops and the showman starts. Anatomists needed to titillate, and they couldn't claim afterwards that they just didn't know how impactful their work might be on uneducated or educated minds alike. Many of them, after all, preferred to have some Latin name added to their own name as identifiers, the medieval Jacques Dubois, an anatomist from Paris, preferring the cognomen Silvius. Old Hieronymus Fabrici ab aqua pendente, preferring to be called Fabricius. The Byzantine anatomist from Bologna, Mondina de Luzi, preferring the term Mundinus. The Renaissance master of anatomy, Gabriel Fallopio. He of the fallopian tube in women between the womb and the ovary fallopius, and so on, and so on. I think you get the sort of person I'm referring to. So into this world comes Antonio Scarpa, possibly the nastiest piece of work around as an anatomist, a man who loved, in all of his wonderful discoveries of the human body, to humiliate everyone around him at every opportunity, and who was apparently so objectionable that when he died, his student... One Carlo Biolchini took him with his friend, the naturalist Mauro Rusconi, who was the executor of, of the Scarpa will, took him into the next room at the University of Pavia and not only performed an autopsy on him whilst he was still warm, but then beheaded him and cut off a few fingers. Well, to be truthful, Scarpa died on October the 31st, 1832, and Biolchini did perform the autopsy on November the 1st, about 27 hours later. So not quite warm, warmish. How do I know this? Well, when you visit Scarpa's museum, the head and the fingers of the man are all there on display. I can't, by the way, tell you how often as a student I fantasised about doing precisely the same sort of thing to a few of my old teachers. Well, no, not really. But it is after-dinner material, let's face it. And old Biolchini wrote about it in his uh, little pamphlet, nicely entitled after, uh, afterwards as Necropsia del defunto Cavaliero Antonio Scarpa, con alcuni brevi cenni sulla malatita che lo conduce alla tomba, the autopsy on our Cavalier Antonio Scarpa and some brief notes on what sent him to his grave. I like that title, which Biolkini published in a medical ar- archive in 1833. Now, when I read about all this, I just had to go and see the scarp head. But it isn't quite as simple as all of that. The museum was closed, and I had to trace down some pavian lecturers at the university until one of them finally put me in touch with a retired emeritus professor of medicine, a remarkable man Paolo Mazzarello, who's also quite a distinguished historian and who would meet me at the front door on such and such a date at such and such a time. Very punctual for a retired Pavian professor so I had to factor this into my trip all the way from Australia but it all worked like clockwork. Now, firstly, let's get that head out of the way. You can see a photograph of it online, propped on top of a small black plinth. The features are sunken, but it's passable as any old guy you might see on the street, except for the mutton-chop whiskers, which are a little archaic. The row of teeth a little more neglected, but he does look a fearsome character. When you get to the museum, you can't get that close. The curator has a long metal hook which she wields onto the clasp on a little wooden box which stands on a pilaster. The reveal of the showman was all a bit of the show itself. There's a kind of voila moment there, I must say, but all you see is the head lying in a murky pool of formaldehyde. You can make out it's human, but very little else. Okay. Okay. I can at least say I've seen it, but it wasn't quite as captivating as I'd imagined, and it got me to wondering whether it might have been the head of just any old person, rather than that of the great man Scarpa himself. I don't want to cast those aspersions. Let's leave that aside for the moment, shall we? Before uh, Before I get into Scarpa, the business of heads and the display of heads is actually a riveting aside. For those interested, and I know that there's a lot of you out there, the journalist Francis Larson wrote a really quite beautiful book on the subject called Severed, Heads Lost and Heads Found, back in 2014. The iconography is, of course, there. Oliver Cromwell's head, the Lord Protector of England in the possession of the Kent surgeon, Josiah Henry Wilkinson or the missing head and its ultimate recovery of the father of the philosophical branch utilitarianism, old Jeremy Bentham. Bentham's certainly worth a visit in another podcast, a man devoted to his embalmed body sitting in its box at University College London, if you ever want to visit there, as what has been described, what he described actually, as an auto-icon. For goodness sake, the man carried two porcelain (coughs) blue eyes around in his waistcoat pocket for the six months before he died, just waiting for his body to be dissected by his good friend, Dr Southwick Smith, who proceeded to botch the job on Bentham's body preservation. That story's for another time. Suffice to say that, short of heads on spikes at traitor's gate, the severed head was quite the thing in Elizabethan England and beyond. Now Scarpa came from humble beginnings, the son of a boatman, Giuseppe, he was born on May the 9th in 1752 in a little place called Lorenzaga in the municipality of Motta di Livenza, which is part of the province of Treviso, just near the city of Padua. His brother, Antonio, born five years before, had died soon after birth. Even as a young boy, he dissected the chickens of his aunt, and he was so gifted that he began his medical studies at the tender age of 15, where he came under the influence of one of the greatest anatomists of the day, a man called Giovanni Battista Morgagni. We need to do a podcast about him. Scarpa graduated just 10 days after he'd turned 18. And it seems impossible, but two years later, Scarpa, under Morgagni's aegis, no doubt was offered the professorship at the University of Modena and some five years later became the Surgeon-in-Chief of the Army Hospital there, appointed by its Duke, one Francis d'Este. Travelling through Europe under the payment by the new Duke, Hercules III, Scarpa hobnobbed with the most famous anatomists in France and England, achieving a remarkable degree of fame taking up the chair in Pavia, which is one of the finest medical universities in Italy. I must say, to look at it now, the University of Pavia, it's hard to appreciate how important Pavia actually was. The first thing that Scarpa did was build the most magnificent anatomy theatre in the north of Italy. It is a Baroque masterpiece. Long carved wooden aisles, wooden carvings, marble busts, ceiling frescoes, one of the Greek gods of medicine and one of surgery shaking hands on the ceiling. It would be a pleasure to dissect in such an auditorium or listen to Scarpa who lectured only in a perfectly fluent Latin. You can of course by appointment visit this wonderful anatomy museum now. One needn't go into Scarpa's wide eclectic areas of research Children's surgery, hernias, the anatomy of the ear, the anatomy of the eye, the management of cleft lip, treating club foot. His work and cleverness were legion. But his bellicose and obnoxious manner was equally legendary. One story had him on one of his European visits, storming out of a meeting with Napoleon because he'd been kept waiting. He was like some people, I must say, I've certainly worked for unscrupulous endeavours to hurt the careers of potential rivals, that's what one of the elements of what Scarpa was famous for. One such rival was the biology professor Lazzaro Spallanzani, whom Scarpa accused of common burglary, at the time a heinous crime. Spallanzani was no rube, he was the first uh, well before Pasteur to suggest that there might be microscopic biological life. This was a guy who experimented by transplanting the heads of snails. An intensely religious Jesuit, Spallanzani was convinced that the spermatozoa that he could see in the semen were parasites, even though he did some, maybe say, seminal work by artificially inseminating dogs. His popularity in Pavia provoked Scarpa, and his acolytes to spread rumours about museological malpractice. Scarpa and others went around accusing Spallanzani of pilfering things from the museum and sticking them in his house. All very well except that Spallanzani was readily able to refute the claims as nonsense and the accusations were rapidly dismissed. The rumours that Spallanzani had been stealing museum artefacts and placing them in his own museum in Emilia was also spread by the Chemistry professor uh, Giovanni Antonio Scopoli, uh, he of the anaesthetic, or even as some have dubbed it, the truth serum, Scopolamine, who used Spallanzani's sabbatical tour to Constantinople as an opportunity to raid his house, the the, uh, Casa Spallanzani, in 1785. This is a beautifully told tale, once again, by our friend Paolo Nazzarello in Constantinople, La Conjura e le Beffa, The Conspiracy and the Hoax. Of course, Scarpa had his comeuppance. When Spallanzani died in February 1799, Scarpa and his student Valeriano Luigi Brera performed Spallanzani's autopsy, and they took out the man's bladder to show the chronic obstruction that had killed him. Not surprisingly, you can see old Spallanzani's preserved innards in the museum in Pavia. Now, if you know a little backstory, little museums like this really come alive. There was no love lost between these men in life, Spallanzani virtually accusing Scarpa of being a butcher of a surgeon. Spallanzani wrote of Scarpa, for example, quote, after he, that is Scarpa, arrived in Pavia, He made five surgical operations in the hospital and all five of the people put to the test by him entered happily into the glory of paradise, The pathologist Achille Monti wrote in his book, uh, Biography of Scarpa, La figura di Antonio Scarpa, nella storia della scienza e nella fortuna dell'Università di Pavia, that one of Scarper's greatest delights was to perform autopsies on his colleagues. So if that's the sort of thing that got old Scarper excited, you can get some measure of the man. You have to get into the different times, of course, when such things were not only considered natural, but even admired. William Harvey, the 17th century discoverer of the circulation of the blood and its connection to the rhythmic contractions of the heart, conducted the post-mortem on his own father, noting his enlarged colon, and he also did one on his sister, commenting rather dispassionately on the quality of her enlarged spleen. John Hunter's brother-in-law, Sir Everett Holm, dragged Hunter's body back to his Castle Street home, still warm after Hunter had died at a board meeting of St George's Hospital in London and had keeled over mid-argument with a massive heart attack. And the Board of Governors of the hospital where Hunter had worked, by the way, as chief surgeon for more than 20 years, voted on whether or not to send Hunter's wife Anne a condolence note. Of course, naturally, they decided to uh, uh, not to do it. But we've stayed off topic a little bit here. Alongside Scarpa's head are the white bleached and formalinised thumb and index finger preserved for some reason, with very deeply rich black fingernails manicured into a kind of square cut that looked decidedly unreal, and a tanned, preserved mix of his urinary bladder and two kidneys, his last illness the same as that of Michelangelo, urinary tract stones, which resulted in his death, that is Scarpa's death, at the age of 80. Now when you look at these specimens, the kidneys look ridiculously small, and like a little plastic model, or perhaps the upper urinary tract of a dog, The fingers are also wrinkled and unreal, like how I would imagine the hand of a vampire. Nevertheless, Joseph Lister, the British father of antiseptic uh, operative technique, took the time on his travels around Europe during his honeymoon to make sure that he visited the scarpa head at Pavia, just as I had done then. For Lister, it was fitting that the preserved bits of scarpa were the body parts that were used in surgery, the head and the hands. By the middle of the 19th century, Scarpa's head was part of guided tours in the north of Italy and a place of pilgrimage for the Hungarian physician, Mor Hetchegi, who jumped up on top of a chair so that he could get closer to the head in the box. He wrote that he found the head deeply moving, but I guess you had to be there for that one. As for that old pathologist, Monty, writing a 100 years after Scarpa had died, Scarpa, he wrote, was, quote, a mythical figure, an ancient god, revengeful and cruel, unquote. Outside is a marble statue of Scarpa, which has been partly defaced, although I must say I couldn't see that damage to it. And after Scarpa's death, apparently attached were the words of an epigraph, Scarpa is dead, I don't give a damn, he lived like a hog and died like a dog. Lovely. But this is not all that is there. Just a bit further along in the museum is the skull of the celebrated Alessandro Volta, he after whom the vault is named and the inventor of the electric battery, along with the casts of the skull of the poet Ugo Foscolo and the painter Pasquale Massacra, and of a cast of the medieval poet Petrarch, whose grave was exhumed in 1873. And then alongside that is the scroll of Camillo Golgi's Nobel Prize for discovering the subcellular Golgi apparatus where cells make proteins. And there too is a reliquary of one of uh, one professor's stomach, that of the chemistry professor Luigi Valentino Brugnatelli, and of the Professor of Mathematics, Vincenzo Brunacci's Aortic Aneurysm. But like the Tsar Peter the Great, if you worked at the University of Pavia back then, chances are someone was going to get their hands on your body and pop bits of you under glass. Well, I have to say that it's only after visiting Scarpa's head that I gradually, some years later, came to realise that it was a place of pilgrimage. For those interested, I'd call attention to a book Savant Relics, Brains and Remains of Scientists, edited by Marco Beretta, Maria Conforti, and who else but our friend Paolo Mozzarello. It's perhaps nowadays not so common to see in the traits of some an excessive cruelty that is both feared and yet at the same time revered. I certainly worked for a professor who had a profound intellect, but who displayed An intense cruelty. He was in effect a highly skilled sociopath who I thought should ideally have been locked in a closet for most of the day. Scarpa's head is a relic of genius and venom preserved in the one bottle, but he sounds just like my old professor. Well, if you appreciated uh, this style of uh, podcast, Perhaps you might want to visit us on patron.podbean.com slash Anatopod, all in capital letters, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D. And you might like to uh, contribute so that we can expand the service and convert to an audiovisual channel. At any rate, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.